trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Come and revel in wrong think. We've got our friend Eric Peters from epautos.com with us today. Eric, great to catch up with you. How does life find you today? It finds me good. I've been fortified by the uh, the video of the pastor in, uh, in Canada that you and I were talking about a little bit off the air, who exercised the face diaper demons. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm urging anybody who's not familiar with this, it's viral, it's everywhere. Just, just put those two words... Uh, Pastor Canada into whatever your search engine is, and you'll see it. It, it was magnificent. The uh, the sickness psychotics came to this man's church where he was attempting to uh, hold Passover service, and he just screamed at them, "Get out! Get out! Get out!" And out they went and did the walk of shame. And just watching that uh, will make you feel twenty years younger. It was very interesting to see, and and as as you and I were talking about. There was shame. There was very, you know, mm-hmm. registerable shame on the face of these these police officers as they walked away. The the uh, health official, I assume that's who she was with them. There was a, mm-hmm. there was a masked Karen who was was there uh, directing, you know, them. Um, she was she was not quite uh, as as uh, eager to go. She was pretty defiant, but mm-hmm. she too left. But yeah, that was that was the best application of righteous indignation I've seen in some time. That's right. And uh, as we were talking about off the air, I think the key to this is for the population, us, to recover the moral high ground and stop being made to feel as if we're somehow bad people for not pretending that we're sick and not destroying our social networks, our businesses, our lives for the sake of these weaponized hypochondriacs. And that'll, that'll turn things around and get you angry like that pastor was and tell these people to get out. They have no quarter. They have no business being there. They're wrong. We're right. And this has got to stop. Here, here. Now I've I've been uh, spending some time on, I spend time on your website uh, you know pretty much every every week I'm looking through there and you've always got interesting things to talk about highways are racist really grabbed mm-hmm. my attention yeah. but uh, you know since everything is racist okay uh, help me understand who is telling us that highways are racist and how can they possibly be racist well, uh, the, the new Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who has about as much business being the decreer of transportation policy as Pope Fauci the 18th has of replacing Eddie Van Halen uh, as the lead guitarist of that band, uh, he has absolutely no background in it uh, and no business being there for that reason. However, he floated this business of the $2 trillion uh, uh, transportation uh, omnibus bill that the Biden-Harris administration is pushing uh, as being necessary uh, to correct the racism of the interstate highway system, which just godsmacked me when I, when I first encountered it. Because as James Brown put it way back in 1986, uh, when he did the theme song for, I think it was Rocky Three, Rocky Living Four. in America, remember that? I do. And, yeah, and you know, it's all about being easy to get anywhere, no matter who you are, no matter where you live. The beauty of the American system is uh, you can just jump in your car and go. And before the interstate system, you couldn't. You want to talk about isolating people, keeping people trapped in cities, uh, making it very difficult for them to go very far from wherever they live or wherever they work. Yeah, get rid of the interstate system. And that's essentially what these people want to do. No, I, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but... 
every time I think, wow, they've reached the lowest level they can go in this, uh, this quest <laughs> to find racism and everything, and then somebody digs a whole new level. Well, it's, it's the same technique. The, you know, the cat call of racism is the same as the, the cat call being used by the weaponized hypochondriacs. Uh, you know, Granny's going to die. They want to shame you and make you shut up. The whole point of this is to stifle any, any reasoned discussion, any questioning of, of their agenda. Uh, and that should also clue people in, because this is not an honest debate. It's not, well, we have this proposal, and let's consider the merits. It's, you're racist if you don't agree, so shut up and sit down. You're dangerous. You're going to kill Granny if you don't lock down your business, if you don't wear your face diaper. It's the common thread through all of this. Amazing. Now, does it ever burn itself out? Do we ever get to the point where people finally go, okay, look, now you're just being, you know, absurd? I think so. The question is when. Uh, you know, we're at a point in history where it could go either way, and it's a unique moment, I think, for us um, it's terra incognita ahead. You can look at other examples in the past. How long did it take to burn out in Cambodia when the Khmer Rouge took mm-hmm. over and were literally executing anybody who even wore glasses because that meant that they read books and therefore they might be dangerous to the regime? How long did it take for the Germans in the 30s to get rid of, of, of wearing armbands and heiling the Fuhrer? Uh, lucky for them, it didn't take more than about 12 years. But in Soviet Russia, it took, what, 70 years for the people to finally get sick uh, of being impoverished and kept under the thumb of the Communist Party. So this could be over very quickly, or it's something that could last a really long time. So what seems to be the end game? I mean, you know, politics always creates perverse incentives for uh, mm-hmm. the people who play it, and as well as their, their well-connected friends. But where is Pete Buttigieg trying to take this? Um, or is, is, this is this just to, to create more public transit, less, uh, less private transportation? Well, superficially, yes, uh, it's to create more public transit, but, but the underlying goal of it is to decrease, if not eliminate, private personal mobility for the average person. That is, the ability of people like you and I to go wherever we want, whenever we want, as opposed to being on a government transit schedule. And implicit in that is it's going to be very difficult for people who don't live in or near a big city and a rail line and a bus to continue to do that when transportation, when personal mobility becomes exorbitantly expensive. That is their end goal here, which ultimately devolves into control. The common denominator with all of these people, these these political psychopaths, as I call them, is that they're about controlling us. They have this urge to, to just treat us like little puppets, and they want to pull the strings. Uh, they are anathema to the American idea of, hey, the American dream is figure out what you want to do in life and then pursue it, pursue happiness. And as long as you're not hurting anybody else, you have a God-given right to do that. These people are the antithesis of that idea. Well, as you point out in your article, uh, with with public transit comes uh, conditions. Oh, you want to ride the bus to get to your job? Well, there's just a few things you'll need to do. Put on your mask, get the shot, Mm -hmm. show your passport. You know, sit, and we already have over. this. This isn't a hypothetical. We already have this. One of the first things that Biden did was to issue an executive order requiring face diapering in all um, federally controlled forms of transportation. So Amtrak, for example, the airports, which are under the federal government's control, uh, and the airport a- airlines themselves are, are doing the face diapering. And 
it's clear that they intend to require the vaccine passport. If you can imagine such a thing, it's, it's literally the Soviet, uh, ver- it's the Soviet, it's the American take on the Soviet internal passport, where if you wanted to move anywhere, you had to carry these papers with you. Only in this case, it's not just the papers. You have to submit to having yourself injected with God knows what. You know, they style it a vaccine, but we don't really know what's in it. And we certainly don't know what the long-term effects are because we can't know it because the things have not been tested on human beings and they have not been out long enough to know what will happen after say three or four years down the road i actually saw a meme earlier today that made me think about what what you're talking about here and it was a picture of a little cabin way out in the middle of nowhere and it said okay let me get this straight if i don't uh, allow you to inject me with the mystery fluid i don't get to sit next to you that's great. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to hang out with you anyways. I want to just be left alone to live my life. Sure enough. And yeah, and again, uh, just to be clear to people listening to this, I don't have any issue with people who freely choose on their own to uh, inject a substance into their body. I think they own their body and they have every right to do that. Uh, what I strenuously oppose and object to is this idea of people being de facto forced, not necessarily by the passage of a law but by the, the marginalizing of their ability to, to live, uh, by restricting that whether they can work, whether they can travel, whether they can enter a store, by all of these, uh, these, these so-called private corporations, which is an oxymoron because a corporation is a creature of the government, that uh, are being used to get around uh, not just laws but legal challenges which could be contested on the basis of the Constitution. That's what they're trying to do here. Wow. Well, like I say, every time I think they couldn't take it any further, you know, mm-hmm. here they hold my beer, and they, they prove me wrong. Um, well, this is a radical philosophy, and radical philosophies have a tendency to get even more radical. There's a saying about the French Revolution that it, eat, it eventually ate its own, and that's true, I think, of all revolutions. When you adopt a, a hysterical, fanatic, zealous point of view, by definition, you're no longer a moderate. You're no longer somebody who's willing to listen to reason and entertain opposing, opposing points of view. You're right about everything. So you, that encompasses everything. You can't leave anything out. Everything must be subordinated to this fanatical ideology. Well, if, if there's any comfort that I can take, it's in the idea that things that go up quickly tend to come down quickly. We're, yes, exactly. We're, we're coming up on the break here, so we've got a break. When we come back, though, Eric, I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about uh, the spending involved in not just Pete Buttigieg's, uh, you know, uh, his particular area of transportation, but in many other areas as well. I've never seen money fly like it's flying right now. Yeah. I want to yep. get your take on, on what this portends economically. Okay. Eric, Eric Peters is my guest. You can go to his website at epautos.com. In fact, I strongly recommend you do. You're going to find some great brain food there when you when you land there. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. We talk about some pretty serious stuff here. That doesn't mean we don't have fun, but uh, these are serious times. And Eric, nowhere do I have a sense of how serious those times are. 
uh, than, than when I look at uh, what's happening in terms of all the, the spending. The, I mean, trillions mm-hmm. of dollars used to be a big deal. Now we mm-hmm. throw it around like, ah, throw another trillion on the latest mm-hmm. stimulus package or infrastructure package. Give me your take on the, on the spending frenzy that's going on and where it's leading us. Well, I think when most of us hear uh, of two trillion or three trillion, it sort of washes over us because it's a it's a boggling number, very difficult to get your head around. And as you say, they just keep throwing more and more out and spending more and more, so it's kind of an abstraction. But then it comes into concrete terms when you go shopping. Um, people may have noticed that uh, the 16 ounce package of bacon that they used to buy now contains 12 ounces of bacon, and that's one way that they hide the effect of what they're doing on the value of money. Our money is being devalued which manifests in requiring more of it to buy the same and often less of what, what it used to buy. Another really blatant example, and I think this is, is particularly interesting, is in areas where they can't really downsize the product. For example, if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and you want to get, say, a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood, they can't reduce that to a 4 by 7.5 sheet of plywood, right? right? So the piece of plywood has to be the same, but the price has gone up. And something that as recently as 2018 cost about 10 or 12 bucks per sheet is now 25 to $40 per sheet. And that gives you some sense of what's happening to the value of our money because of the policies that are being pursued in Washington. Well, and, and you, you nailed one of the things that I noticed some time ago, and that is when I used to pick up bacon, I'd grab it, you know, a pound of bacon. It's not mm-hmm. a pound anymore. It's only 12 ounces. Same cost. Sure, but it's psychologically very deft because people see, still see this package that kind of looks the same, even though the amount of food in it is less. And the, uh, the trick is that the price is it's kind of the same as it was a year or so ago. But then you get home, and that, the pound of bacon that you used to need to feed your family breakfast, well, 12 ounces isn't a pound, and it's no longer sufficient. So you really need two packs of the bacon so you can get a sense of how much more you're paying to feed your family. And this is, this is going on everywhere. The packages... Uh, are being uh, the contents of the package are being winnowed down. They're using all kinds of little tricks, like like putting a convex uh, little bubble in the bottom of plastic things, or reducing the the number of ounces in something like a container of milk, uh, as so as to maintain the fiction that the prices haven't really increased that much, which they can do with things like food. But again, if you go out to get things like two by fours or four or four by eight sheets of plastic or of of, of, of lumber, you'll see, and it, it should make your spider sense tingle at how rapidly our currency is being devalued because the more of the stuff that they pump into the economy, the less that what we have can buy. That's just the nature of it. That's the definition of what inflation is. Well, and there's this added uh, problem, too, with, um, you know, all the shutdowns have impacted people in, in terms of their employment. If you were deemed non-essential, tough luck, but, hey, mm-hmm. we'll send you these stimulus checks. There's yeah. also been a lot of government spending to the point where um, I know, for instance, that uh, there, there are retail establishments that would, would very willingly hire people, but it's easier for people to sit home and collect a check than it is to, well, to sure. go get a job. They'll make more collecting government money than they will working. Well, they think they will. And this is where, once again, the, the success of the government school system uh, manifests People will see, for example, that, oh, I got a $1,400 check from the Biden administration. I'm so happy. But they never stop to add up. And this is just one example of the cost. The way gas uh, is now costing them uh, enough that it vitiates that $1,400 over the course of about two years. And that's not, inca- that's not including all of the other things that cost more. They just see that $1,400 check. Just like uh, you know, the, the, the person who doesn't want to work and sits home all day, playing video games and thinking, well, I'll just get my UBI, I'll get my check. 
the end of the day, they're going to find out that their, their, their life has been diminished. This is what always happens. They, they won't be able to uh, afford to pay their rent eventually. They'll have to move, move into a group house. They'll have to eat whatever food the government deigns to provide. Resources are inherently limited. These politicians can't just wave a magic wand and create value out of nothing. It's just it's, it defies reality as well as intelligence. In, in your column, The Inflation They Can't Hide, you point out that America is becoming Venezuela. Yeah. And I agree with you, but I think a lot of Americans are going to have a hard time accepting, oh, Venezuela, why, they're totally mm-hmm. different than us. They, they have socialist policies, and they, they have, <laughs> yeah. you know, but the, but the closer you look, and especially if you look with the understanding of, of what the principles of sound monetary policy are, what sound, you know, uh, political philosophy is, the more you're going to realize, no, actually, mm-hmm. we're on our way. We're, we're moving the same direction. They're just a little further ahead of us. Well, these are the same Americans who will celebrate their freedoms come the 4th of July wearing their face diapers and carrying their vaccine passports. Wow, if, if they have permission. <laughs> if they have permission, exactly. There, there's, it's a really tragic, it's sad, uh, just lack of apprehension of what's happening in the world relative to what's happening here. We talked a couple of episodes ago about uh, the fact that in China you can get a, uh, a sub-$10,000 pickup truck in China. Now, you can't get anything like that here. And we're told that the Chinese are, oh, they're, they're, they live in a police state. But the fact of the matter is that despite the fact that they do live in a police state, in a, in a number of ways, the Chinese enjoy greater freedoms than Americans enjoy. So let's, let's talk solutions here for a moment, because I'm gathering that whoever is listening to us at this moment, whoever's in the, within the sound of our voices, is probably not someone who's okay to mm-hmm. just sit back and, you know, let it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the steps that, uh, that you would encourage people to take to, uh, to maintain their independence, maintain their, um, their sovereignty when, when so much dependence is being proffered to us? Well, most of all, insist on it. Stop saying uh, 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 how high when the government tells you to jump. Stop closing your business. Stop wearing the face diaper. Refuse to allow them to inject you with a substance that you don't want injected into your body. Stand up for yourself as a free man or woman. Stand up for other people when you see other people being harassed and bullied by these pathological people, whether it has to do with the weaponized hypochondriacs uh, or the more run-of-the-mill. Stop feeling bad about being free. Stop feeling bad about being an American and educate yourself about what that means, about what it takes to be free, and what you should value, and what you should value for the sake of your children and your grandchildren. Hear, hear. And I would, I would encourage people to consider who you hang out with, and, and I mean if that's virtually or if that's in person, but um, if, if you're looking for like minds, I'm going to suggest go over to uh, Eric's uh, website, ericpetersautos.com. You'll find Eric's columns are very informative, and I, I'll say this, don't blush, but they're, they're inspiring for people who are committed to liberty. But your commenters, the people who follow you and the people who comment on the articles you publish are a collection of very like-minded fellow travelers, and I think people would find some great camaraderie there. Well, I think they will, and I will, t- I will toot my own horn here a little bit in one, in one way that I think is important. We do not suppress or censor people's comments on my site. People are free to speak their minds, with the only caveat being, you know, we don't tolerate personal abuse, meaning if you start calling people names and using profanity, that kind of thing, we'll put aside. But unlike all of these other sites, uh, um, especially the mainstream media sites, that will uh, cancel and suppress and not even allow to be seen 
any kind of opinion that deviates from the party orthodoxy, we do. Uh, I don't expect everybody to agree with me. I just expect you to bring something to the table and defend your point of view. And we have a lively back and forth, uh, which is the kind of thing that is necessary for a free society. We have to be able to discuss ideas in a civilized manner and, and, and use reason and logic and facts instead of hurl insults at each other and scream and yell like, like deranged seven-year-olds. Yeah, and we don't. And, and I notice you don't treat your your uh, readers like children who have to be shielded from ideas that might dangerously right. corrupt them. That's right. We're adults. You know, you, if your feelings are going to get hurt because somebody disagrees with your point of view, then don't come to EP Autos. But I doubt anybody listening to our broadcast falls into that category. Here, here. Eric, unfortunately, we are up against the clock here, but thank you once again. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that you give us a little bit of your time each week to, uh, to give us your thoughts on uh, you know, the passing scene. Well, I'm happy to. And again, as we've talked about before, I think it's vital that all of us, in, in whatever way we're able, uh, create and expand and build on these informal social networks and bolster each other's resolve to fight this for our sakes and for the sake of the country. Hear, hear. Eric, I look forward to talking with you next week. You bet, Brian. Thank you. Is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to my sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com. Also, Pure Light. You can visit their website at pure-light.com. And MonticelloCollege.org. Wonderful sponsors, each and every one of them. And there's a link to their uh, respective businesses and their websites in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I encourage you, uh, go check them out. Send a little love their way. Just let them know their message is reaching you via this platform. So I have a question for you. Why do so many otherwise capable individuals choose to embrace a sense of learned helplessness? What does that look like? Okay, let me, let me give you an example off the top of my head. How many people do you know who, uh, if, if confronted with, uh, say, <clears throat> someone trying to kick in their door, someone trying to break into their home, would reach for the telephone and say, you know, I better call the authorities to come and deal with this. I think most of us, that would be among our instincts, right? Well, we better get somebody here to deal with this. Okay, now here's the difference between a person who is uh, operating from that mindset of uh, there's nothing I can do about it or I don't have the authority to deal with this versus someone who says, okay, here is the immediate problem, here's the immediate threat, and I'm prepared to stop whoever is coming into, you know, trying to force their way into my home. Now, I hope you understand. I'm not talking about uh, I got a free range to shoot whoever I want. It's not, uh, it's not about a trigger-happy attitude. It's about the mindset that there's a problem that needs to be solved, and I mean a real problem. This is a threat to the health, safety of my family, etc. Who's going to deal with it? Do I get on the phone with 911 and, and, you know, let the operator tell me? Now, whatever you do, don't get a weapon. Don't, don't do anything. I mean, on the one hand, you're, you're declaring the, the arena to be the police's when you invite them into the picture. And believe me, when you show up, when they show up, rather, you don't want to be standing there doing an impression of a man with a gun or a woman with a gun. 
that could be dangerous for you. But it's the idea that, you know, your, your first duty is to get the authorities involved and let them take care of the problem for you. And, and I, I really hope this doesn't sound, you know, in any way cavalier or bloodthirsty to say this, but it seems to me that, uh, that a free, self-actualized individual, somebody who actually is living their life and has autonomy, if they were facing that kind of a problem, someone you've got to, you know, you've got three guys trying to kick down your, your front door. My first hope is that you would be in a position to stop them, whether it's through just warning them, hey, you know, you force your way in here, you know, I will use force to stop you and, and being capable of, of doing so. Or, you know, if you're just going to you know, go find a place to hide, wait for the authorities to come and ride to the rescue. And don't get me wrong, because they'll come. They will. They'll bring friends. They'll come as fast as they can. But where does that sense of learned helplessness come from? Got a great article here from James Corbett. And if you haven't uh, subscribed to, to his uh, videos and his, his website, he really has a great take on just about everything. I mean, he is really good. The article's titled, You Can't Win, Don't Even Try. And this applies to a lot of other areas of our lives other than just, you know, protecting yourself. He says, imagine you find a prisoner in an unlocked jail cell. Confused, you ask him why he's sitting there when the door to his cell isn't even locked. Oh, it's unlocked? I didn't check. You assure him, it's unlocked. <clears throat> you ask again, why don't you leave? And the prisoner responds, well, why bother? They'll probably catch me before I get out. Now, you look around in confusion, you explain to him, look, this isn't even a prison. You've simply been told to wear an orange jumpsuit and stay in an unlocked room. But you don't have to comply. All you have to do is leave. At which point the prisoner says, well, even if I get away, they'll just find me and bring me back here. I might as well just stay put. Now, James Corbett asks, do you think this story is ridiculous? Well, of course it is. But he says the situation it details is all too true. In fact, researchers have known for half a century the mechanism by which people can be made to effectively lock themselves up inside their own mental prison. And it didn't take long for the intelligence agencies to put that research to use. So he explores the startling true story of how the public has been conditioned into a false sense of helplessness and, more important by far, what we can do to break that conditioning. So if the story of the prisoner who won't escape his unlocked jail cell sounds outlandish, then consider the story of the elephant and the rope. So in India, elephant handlers will often train baby elephants to be submissive by chaining them to a post, and they'll fight with all their will to break free day in and day out, but eventually they just give up. And when the baby elephants become adults, they no longer need chains to be tied in place. Just a thin rope will do. Now, James Corbett says, if that sounds like a cruel thing to do to an elephant, you're right, but it's also effective. Massive, powerful adult elephants can be kept in place with a flimsy rope simply because they've been conditioned from birth to believe that they can't break free of their tether. But like many things that are obvious to those who work with, this, who work with the natural world, this insight had to be rediscovered in the lab by some graduate students in psychology. In this case, Martin Seligman, a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, conducted a series of experiments in the late 60s that essentially replicated this elephant and rope phenomenon. Entitled Learned Helplessness, 
1972 paper outlining this research showed how Seligman and his team subjected two sets of dogs to painful electric shocks. Now, the first group of dogs were placed in a shuttle box where they could escape the electric shocks by jumping over a small barrier. These dogs soon learned that crossing the barrier protected them from the shocks, and as you would expect, they crossed the barrier more and more quickly each time the experiment was performed until they could escape the shocks altogether. The second group of dogs were placed in what Seligman described as a Pavlovian hammock from which they could not escape the shocks however much they struggled. This set of dogs reacted completely differently from the control group when placed in the shuttle box. Fully two-thirds of this group did not even try to escape the shocks and thus never discovered that they could avoid them altogether simply by crossing the barrier. So they simply lay down, whining, until the shocks ceased. Now he says the lesson of this experiment is seemingly straightforward. By our hypothesis, the dog does not try to escape because he expects that no instrumental response will produce shock termination. In other words, if you want to induce complete helplessness in a dog, condition them to believe that nothing they do will make any difference. Now, animal experiments, you know, really are never about animals, he writes. He says they're about humans. And in this case, the point was not to learn how to induce helplessness in dogs, but to learn how that state of helplessness is induced in humans. And by the way, when he says that state of helplessness, he's talking about depression. Then James Corbett asks, how long do you think it took for the CIA to start weaponizing Seligman's research for use against its enemies? If your answer was three decades, well, then you win a prize. Yep, by the time the War of war on Terror, or actually calls it the War of Terror, came along, the criminals in action were using, that's CIA, were using Seligman's experiments as a how-to guide in their illegal torture program. An old folktale holds that you can conjure the apparition of Mary Bloodsworth, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, by chanting her name in front of a mirror in a candlelit room. But if you want to summon a real demon, it's much more straightforward than that. All you have to do is document a psychological phenomenon that can be weaponized against the population, and before you know it, you'll have the CIA at your doorstep, notepad in hand. Just ask Martin Seligman. Having long since shifted his focus from torturing animals in the name of understanding human depression, by 2001, Seligman had pioneered a new branch of cognitive psychology called positive psychology seeking to help people overcome their learned helplessness. And he talks more about this later in the article. But as part of that work, Seligman delivered a lecture at the San Diego Naval Base in May of 2002 on how his research could help American personnel, in his own words, resist torture and evade successful interrogation by their captors. Among the hundred or so people in attendance at that lecture was one particularly enthused fan of Seligman's work. Dr. Jim Mitchell, a military retiree and psychologist who'd contracted to provide training services to the CIA. And although Seligman had no idea of it at the time, Mitchell was, as we now know, one of the key architects of the CIA's illegal torture program. Now, naturally, Mitchell's interest in Seligman's talk was not in how it could be applied to help American personnel overcome learned helplessness and resist torture, but rather how it could be used to induce learned helplessness in a CIA target and enhance torture. As the New York Times described in a report on the subject back in 2009, Dr. Mitchell's colleague said, Dr. Mitchell, rather, colleague said, believed that producing learned helplessness in an Al-Qaeda interrogation subject might ensure that he would comply with his captor's demands. 
Many experienced interrogators disagreed, asserting a prisoner so demoralized would say whatever he thought the interrogator expected. All right, I got to take a quick break here, but we're going to come back to this. The question I have for you is not, are you being interrogated by the CIA, but rather, to what degree have you and I been conditioned to believe that we are helpless as we sit in an unlocked jail cell in our minds? We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article here from James Corbett. I found this this morning on lourockwell.com. And it's all about uh, you can't win, don't even try. And I'll admit, I, I really, I'd never heard of uh, Martin Seligman. I'd never heard of uh, his, his, at least I wasn't familiar with his experiments in learned helplessness and how the CIA took that information and used it to learn how to better break prisoners, how to better break the people they were trying to interrogate. So apparently, uh, Mitchell and his colleague, Dr. Bruce Jessen, helped direct the 2002 interrogation, that's in quotation marks, of Abu Zubaydah, Zubaida, rather, who was waterboarded 83 times in a single month. And uh, the supposed 9-11 mastermind, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who confessed to the 9-11 plot, that's in quotation marks, by the way, confessed, after being waterboarded 183 times and sleep-deprived over six days. In fact, uh, Mitchell himself even personally threatened to cut the throat of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's son during one interrogation. The point is, these techniques were so effective that not only did they produce the testimony that formed the backbone of the 9-11 Commission report and thus, to this day, formed the backbone of the official 9-11 story, they also caused Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to confess to targeting a bank that wasn't even founded until after his arrest. Wow, that is some effective stuff, right? In a sick way, the CIA's experiments in inducing learned helplessness proved that Seligman had discovered valuable or valid insights rather into a real psychological phenomenon. It's certainly possible to create conditions to break someone's will and cause them to confess to whatever their torturers want. But this emphatically is not the point of the learned helplessness research, and it's important to note that Seligman, for his part, was never aware that his research was being used by the CIA until after the Senate's report on the torture program was released to the public and he completely denounced the perversion of his research when it was exposed. So how do you break the conditioning? Well, here James Corbett writes, From some lab experiments in the 1960s to an illegal CIA torture program four decades later, the story of the research into learned helplessness is incredible enough, but thankfully, the story doesn't end there. In one version of Seligman's experiment, one group of dogs were given levers to push that could stop the shocks from happening, while another group were given levers to push that did nothing at all. Unsurprisingly, when the levers were taken away, the dogs whose levers had worked in the first round of the experiment attempted to escape the shocks and eventually discovered they could jump over the barrier to be free of them. The dogs whose levers had not worked almost uniformly curled up and accepted the shocks without even attempting to escape. Now, our would-be social engineers know this already. And that's precisely why we're asked to fixate on the never-ending selection sideshow, uh, or election sideshow circus. 
I think he's right there, selection. As I have pointed out time and time again, he writes, not only is the entire concept of electing representatives to impose their will on the entire population of an arbitrary geographical location fundamentally immoral, but it's also a sure way to induce learned helplessness in the population. As you know by now, the 2D political chess game that's used to distract the public does actually nothing, absolutely nothing, to change the real political agenda that's set by the 3D chess masters. And just as every child eventually discovers that their toy steering wheel doesn't actually control the car, so too do even the most devoted statists eventually begin to realize that their ballot in the voting box every four years does nothing to prevent the globalist agenda from playing out like some unstoppable nightmare. Now that realization is demoralizing, and that's the entire point. The message of the political system that we've grown up our whole lives with is throw the bums out every four years if you like. It doesn't matter. It changes nothing. You have no effect on the system. Unfortunately, all too often the victims of this conditioning merely internalize this message and stop there. These are the people who spend their time in online forums and comment sections preaching that nothing will ever change, shooting down every idea or alternative that's ever proposed. Now, although critical examination of ideas is always important, the victims of learned helplessness fail to realize that they've been locked inside a mental prison by their erstwhile masters. Like the prisoner in our hypothetical unlocked jail cell, they've not only given up hope of escaping, they've given up even trying to look for an escape route. But what if we were to examine the results of this experiment from the other side? What if instead of the, what if instead of the would-be controllers of humanity, we examine these findings for what they can tell us about how to empower the public and dispel the learned helplessness that keeps them from looking for real solutions? See, this is the question that Seligman turned to after the publication of his experimental findings. See, he wasn't experimenting on dogs because he was a sadist, nor was he simply interested in studying learned helplessness either in dogs or humans. After documenting the phenomenon, his focus quickly shifted to what could be done with this knowledge. As Maria Konnikova documents in her 2015 New Yorker article on the research, Seligman didn't stop his research there. He told his supervisor he didn't believe in causing suffering unless it had some inherent value that would lead to bettering lives, both canine and human. <clears throat> so he and Meyer, his colleague in the original experiments, set out to figure out a way to reverse the effect of learned helplessness in the dogs. What they found was that one simple tweak could stop that passivity from developing. When the researchers first put all the dogs in the shuttle box where the shock was controlled by a jump, and only then into the inescapable harness, the effect of the harness was broken. Now even though the dogs were being bombarded by shocks, they didn't give up. They kept trying to control the situation, pressing the panels despite the lack of feedback, and when they again were put into the box, they didn't cower. Instead, they immediately reclaimed their ability to avoid shocks. Now one insight that can be garnered from this research is that just as people can be conditioned into a state of helplessness by being subjected to uncontrollable shocks, they can also be inoculated, to use a phrase, against that feeling of helplessness by first being exposed to a situation where they do have control. In fact, he says that's part of the core ethos of his Solutions Watch series. There are certainly those things that are completely beyond our control, but because they are beyond control, there's absolutely no point in focusing on them. Spot on, James Corbett. He says our priority has to be those things that are within our control. Where and how we live, what we spend our time, money, and energy doing, how, who we spend our time with, how we provide the necessities for our family. 
the type of community that we live in. All of these things are, to some extent, things that we can have a direct influence on. And by exerting that influence, however slight, we train ourselves that our situation is not hopeless. The field of positive psychology is well worth exploring. In doing so, we can gain important insights into our own cognitive processes and become more conscious of the explanatory styles that we use to make sense of the world. And in doing so, we can also gain more control over these processes and unlearn a lifetime of learned helplessness that's caused many to abandon all hope. At the very least, he says, it can help us to realize that the door to our mental jail cell is unlocked. All we have to do is walk out the door. Good stuff, huh? I mean, it's, hopefully it gives you a sense of, uh, hey, maybe there's, maybe there's more to this than just simply, well, I guess I better shut up and do what I'm told. Speaking of shut up and do what you're told, um, I'm including an article in today's show notes from uh, uh, James Howard Kunzler, and it's uh, Peak Woke. I don't know if you've been following uh, the the saga of Major League Baseball, and uh, because Georgia apparently passed a law in their state legislature which makes it harder to cheat on elections, that's being uh, portrayed as well. That's totally racist. It's a return to Jim Crow. This is nothing more than an attempt to keep black people from voting, and and it's the patronizing tone that that uh, black people for some reason are incapable of operating a computer, incapable of, of sussing out how to find, you know, their, their voter ID or, you know, being accountable for, for voting. I, I don't know. You know, the, here's, the, here's the kicker. So Major League Baseball, in a show of wokeness, and, and by the way, backed by the president, he, he was like, oh, I would support them moving the uh, All-Star game. So they did. Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game to Coors Field in Colorado. Did you know Colorado has a, uh, has, has a voter ID law that reads almost exactly the same as Georgia's voter ID law? You have to show ID. You can't be handing out food and water to uh, volunteers at polling places if you're wearing, you know, a candidate or uh, electioneering apparel. Interesting. St- I wonder how they're going to explain this. Well, I'd like you to, to check out the article by James Howard Kunstler, Peak Woke. He describes, you know, how this is, it's, we're reaching the point of insanity. And that's not a good look for us. But he also points out that all social hysterias run their courses. They run out of new gags. They run out of new recruits. They grow tiresome, even comical, as the woke mainstays of racism, misogyny, and white supremacy eventually burn themselves out. And their promptings reveal themselves as obviously dishonest. The punishments they seek seem increasingly warped and sadistic. He says the behavior they induce begins to look patently insane. And he says that's where America stands right now. Another place you'll see this is in the trial of uh, police officer Derek Chauvin, uh, who was uh, videoed kneeling on George Floyd's neck at that Minneapolis intersection. We'll talk more about that in another uh, episode. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks again for reveling in wrong thing. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.